today on CityCast Denver. Just last month, it became legal in Denver to have weed delivered right to your doorstep. So the CityCast Denver team wanted to try it. We ordered about $20 worth of edibles from the one delivery service we could find, only to discover that after taxes and delivery fees, those little gummies would cost more than $60. So is this how it's supposed to work? And if so, who is weed delivery really for? Today is Monday, September 27th, 2021. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. You know, before we get started, just I I need this personal clarification. Cannabis is the correct term, right? Wow. I mean, it's all a matter of perspective, baby. Um. <laughs> Anne Maria Wad has been on the show before, but in case you didn't know, she previously hosted a podcast for Colorado Public Radio called "On Something," about post-legalization life in Colorado. I wanted to invite her on to explain what exactly is going so wrong with cannabis delivery in Denver. Anne Maria Wad, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Good to be here. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. We're talking about cannabis delivery today which has been in this kind of weird limbo for a while. Could Mm -hmm. you briefly explain where the city of Denver is with delivery licenses? Yeah. So delivery licenses are available. Um, And I think if you have lived in Denver for a a little while, uh, there's maybe a little bit of deja vu when it comes to like social consumption where it's available, it's around, But uh, can people actually obtain a license and open a viable business and make money off of it? TBD. (laughs) Yeah, it is in this weird place. Like delivery is legal, but only one company is doing like, what is it? How is it working or not working, I guess? Very similar to social consumption, again, in the sense that it is a regulatory system that was created by like committee. Um, and so there are all these requirements that are really difficult and honestly very expensive to meet to get one of these licenses. Um, and so by virtue of, um, doing things like opening up delivery, raising the dispensary limit cap, um, and offering social equity licenses, those are things that are very nice on paper, but in practice, they so far are not really getting people anywhere. You said it, there's one person that's got a license so far, um, By all accounts, they're difficult to get still. Who is that person or this company? Duba, Duba, Duba. It is a company started by a guy who I believe also has a a, a cannabis conviction on his record. So he uh, qualifies for these social equity licenses. And right now he is partnered with the dispensary Strawberry Fields, I believe. Yes. Um, And that's kind of how this law works is that a dispensary has to partner with like a third party for delivery. Well, and that's what I'm wondering too is like, so you mentioned to to get this license, you have to qualify for a social equity designation. Is that part of this delivery issue? In city of Denver, those licenses are set aside for what's called social equity applicants. And these are applicants that are considered to be from areas that are uh, have been impacted quite a bit by the war on drugs or who have family members or who themselves have... Uh, 
criminal records related to cannabis, things like that. But I think what you've seen in other states is that this is like a really difficult category to specify. And like, like you can you can catch a lot of people in this category who don't necessarily need these benefits. The social equity category. Right. And then uh, something that you know, I reported on a lot over the last year is uh, companies, multi-state companies can take full advantage of these programs, no problem. Um, mm. It does not keep them out. And so there has to be like a real question of uh, if you are creating these licenses for people who have fewer resources, less capital, are not like socially well-connected, wealthy, stuff like that, and then you're setting them up to compete on the same exact playing field as the big multi, the big Uber of weed, honestly, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. I just, uh, I think that explains a bit about why you haven't seen a lot of delivery services come online yet. So what you're saying is there are these larger companies that do weed delivery in other places and they're able to potentially take advantage of uh, being a service here in Denver by applying because they may have someone on their staff that fits that social equity profile? Yeah. Well... So the way that it ends up working is that um, you can't have big corporations that operate in multiple states like you can with any other business because it's weed. So all these companies have to sort of set up operations from scratch in new states. So despite being really well established in California where they're originally based and in other states on the West Coast, they do have to start from scratch here. Um, But they can poach out candidates who sort of fit this description and could qualify for the license. Um, But whether or not that candidate is actually going to get a real slice of ownership or make any real money off of it, you know, isn't required by the law. Like it doesn't you know, there's no way to ensure that. And so uh, what you've seen in a lot of other states is that, you know, these large companies can pull in people who, yes, qualify for these social equity programs and then have them sign really predatory contracts or have them sign contracts where they're putting up a lot of their own money to, to go into this business. The, the one in particular arrangement that we focused on in the last season in Massachusetts, it was like anywhere money was changing hands, the, the larger company was getting a cut. And so it doesn't really give like a, a, a new business owner, a, 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 like a mom and pop type of person, a real chance to like grow their business and own it in the long term, like in a meaningful way. And so it's like when we're talking about, yeah, social equity licenses are going to increase ownership in this industry among marginalized people or people who have been harmed by the war on drugs. It's a head scratcher as to how that's actually supposed to happen in that long term. When it is, when there isn't anything in the law that prevents large companies from getting into this, you know what I mean? Like there isn't anything that says this has to be like a small business of no more than <laughs> X number of people, right? You know. So you're saying that there's social equity regulations in place, but in reality, they're not really implementable. No, it's not. And and I I go back to social consumption. It's a lot of the same reasons, too. It's like we have distance requirements for facilities. And so this locks up most of the real estate, especially among, like, existing cannabis businesses. I think this is the other thing is, like, the industry in Denver is huge and it's really consolidated among a handful of companies now. Um, And they got to compete with them, too. You're asking social equity applicants to compete with Big national companies like Ease, you're asking them to compete with the big statewide companies like LiveWell, like Terrapin Station. And it's just not, it's not a fair fight. It really isn't. Why do you think this keeps happening? The, the theme of 
delivery in Denver and in social consumption, social equity, all of these cannabis regulations that have come out over the last several years has been, we've got plenty of time to figure this out. And I think at a certain point you have to recognize how out of touch that makes you sound. Yes. Because the most vulnerable people don't have plenty of time. Yeah. Um, you know, there still isn't like a easy way to get a cannabis conviction cleared off your record in this state. And, you know, every year that goes by for a person that has that on their record, that's a lease they can't sign or renew. That's a job they can't accept. That's a roof they can't keep over their head. Those are real material consequences to taking all the time you need to figure this out. Yeah, let alone someone who wants to get into the business and has that on their record. Let alone. You're just talking yeah. about everyday experiences that folks with uh, with these records, the things that they encounter just in their everyday lives. Yeah, it's like on paper you can have a conviction and start a business. <laughs> but uh, in reality, if you are a person who's been living your life with a cannabis conviction, you probably can't get a loan. You probably don't have venture capitalist friends. You probably don't have a real estate broker. Um, right. Like it's, I just think there's not enough holistic thinking to actually make a real equity impact. And I, and I, 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 like, look, I know there's lobbyists in the room. I think, like, that's also a really fundamental piece of this conversation, too, is that the cannabis industry, God, Colorado voters legalized recreational cannabis almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. This is not a baby industry anymore. It's not even an adolescent anymore. This is an industry that has heaps of lobbyists, like any other industry. Right. And they're not just in the Colorado State House every year. They are in Congress, believe it or not. And, and they have so much sway over policy. And honestly, at this point in time in Colorado, with the way that the business has become consolidated and very exclusive, the only way to advance social equity is for that business to sacrifice something materially. Um, and until that happens, it's not going to move the needle. I think it's, I think it's also a, a little bit of an unfair fight to expect policymakers to compensate for that. Um, you know, the industry holds an immense amount of power in Colorado now. Um, they have the ability to give things away. So I, I, think, I think that also needs to be a part of it is, is, is asking like, you've got your, I don't know how many dispensary locations all up and down the I-25 corridor. You've got money. You have things you can give away. I mean, you can meaningfully bring on people who are social equity applicants, engage in them in an equitable way, um, allow them to own the business in a real way. But it's like the way, you know, there's nothing in the law that requires that. Right now it's like uh, waiting on someone's, you know, heart to grow. <laughs> like, it sounds to me like you're saying that the problem is more than just the language and the laws and regulations that you think some deeper change needs to happen. What do you think that looks like? There has to be a real, uh, I think there has to be like a little bit of soul searching here about being this far into legalization and still trying to fashion a legalization that's not going to offend the folks who didn't vote for it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're way past that. We're just so past it. I mean, it's, this is, this is why we, we made the show that we did. Like it was not going to be a show about should we legalize? If so, why? If not, why? Most of the American public is just so far past that conversation. And it's really about like how do communities live with this? And I think like one of the lessons, the big lessons is like you regulating it to death makes certain people really happy. Um, but it disadvantages others. It disadvantages a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of people. And so I don't I think there has to be a question about like, does it make sense to keep inviting these same people to the table when we know what they're going to say? 
Um, or do you invite the people to the table who are actually impacted by this, who, who, like, who can't get into the business and have tried, you know, who don't belong to a giant dispensary chain or a huge corporation in another state? Right. Like black and brown people here that live in Colorado who have found this industry to be like impenetrable. How are other states handling delivery? To give you some perspective, California legalized recreational weed, I believe, in 2016. And I think that delivery was part of the deal from the get-go, right? And so they've had all this time to make runaway cash <laughs> off, of, off of weed delivery um, and, and make mistakes and build up the infrastructure um, and, and learn how to do this correctly. And then you're asking these brand new local businesses who are going to be learning this stuff in real time to somehow compete for that market share. It just feels like we've, it feels like the city wrote delivery laws for uh, uh, six years ago, almost. <laughs> like, it's just not. So they're not even applicable. They're not even really. I just don't think they reflect an understanding of like how much the platform is a piece of this. Um, I don't think they reflect the fact that social equity efforts in other states have been totally undermined by multi-state corporations and other states have done things to rein this in. So there are some ways we can learn from that. And I think what's been really disappointing is just like this continued sort of wait and see approach when when people of color have been saying that they've waited long enough, you know, like they've they've had to watch other people make their, their millions <laughs> off of cannabis, right. you know, Um and not to mention things in the city were cheaper six to ten years ago. I mean, just in general. Now, I mean, God, the big the big story about cannabis in Denver in the last several years has been real estate. The real estate is right. impossible as it is. Yeah. Um, so it's like saying, oh, yeah, go open up a business. But yeah, jump into this industry right now. By the way, everything is unaffordable from, you know, every aspect of yeah. it is unaffordable. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me yell and rant about this again for a while. <laughs> Just a note, there are six dispensaries licensed for delivery in Denver right now, according to Westward. And at least one, Le Eagle, is in talks with Duba on a delivery partnership. Westward also reports that there are a quote-unquote handful of other dispensaries and delivery companies currently awaiting approval from the city. And here's what else is happening in Denver today. Mayor Hancock's vaccine mandate for city employees seems to be working, with nearly 90% of full-time employees fully inoculated already ahead of his September 30th deadline. But according to a report from CBS4, seven Denver police officers are suing the city over the mandate. They say that they shouldn't have to choose between unemployment and the vaccine. Last time I saw data on this, Denver police were by far the least vaccinated department. So we'll see how this plays out around the deadline this Thursday. And also, last week, Longmont announced a new sister city agreement with the Northern Arapaho tribe, which of course lived on the land that became Longmont. The agreement marks the first sister city relationship between a city and a sovereign nation and will allow for cultural exchange between children in Longmont and on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. By the way, thank you for all of your breakfast burrito recommendations. We're sorting through and diving in, so stay tuned. 
If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us, rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Later. I don't even understand what I'm saying. (laughs) It's like, word salad, word salad, word salad?